0: longest chapter in the book of Genesis. <laughs> All right, if you've got a Bible with you, open it up to Genesis 24. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, we'll be on page 17. And we will do, hopefully, we'll have some time for some Q&R here at the end, so if there, anything comes up that you have questions about, go to slido.com and type in revCDA C.D.A. in the box and you can ask a question. Oh. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good to us. We sit here in this place uh, relatively comfortable and safe. Uh, we have been given your word. Um, we recognize after after reading this story that, that maybe it seems straightforward in some ways. Maybe it seems like, what is this about in other ways? But um, at the same time, you've Uh, You've not kept yourself silent from us. You've pursued us. Uh, You've given us these words to make us wise. God, I pray that you would shape us this morning. Whatever, um, wherever we're at in the beginning of this new year, whatever we're thinking, whatever our concerns are, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak. I pray for those in our body that are that are hurting. God, I, I think about Matt Jenkins and, and his upcoming surgery. Just pray um, just that, that, that you would bring healing to his body, that that would go well. Pray for for Matt Lowe, who's doing the surgery, and, and that that would go well as well, that you would guide his hands. Um, just thankful for the relationship of, of two members of our church being able to um, minister to one another in those ways. God, I pray for just the, the families. Uh, with the little ones and just the struggles that there's so many, uh, just beautiful young little kids that are just a real pain sometimes, and and that's such a tension for parents. And I just pray that you would be in the midst of that tension, that both the joy and the and the struggle of rearing children. And, um, God, I pray for uh, those of us that that are out in the community, um, working and going to school and. In interacting with businesses, that we would be aware of who we represent, that we are yours. Um, we, we prayed it this morning. Your name be honored as holy, God. May it help us to be people that, that honor your name as holy in our interactions with our community. In Jesus' name, amen. About the time uh, it was middle of 2016, Joanna and I had been praying about planting a church for a while, and really felt like God was calling us to step out into this work. And um, we were attending a church for quite a long time. And when I approached my pastor about that, and and um, I was I was told that like I needed to I needed to do what the Lord was calling me to do, but. That church wasn't interested in, in participating with us in that venture, um, and I was concerned about that because I didn't really want to just go out and, and start a church on my own with no accountability, under no authority, with no um, uh, yeah, with, with 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 no community behind me. And so we just continue to pray. Like, what are we supposed to do? Uh, and uh, shortly thereafter, within a number of weeks, I got a phone call from an acquaintance who pastors a church, and at the time, pastors a church in Bonners Ferry. And he said, "Hey, what's going on within your church life?" And I said, "Well, actually, funny thing, you ask. We're we're praying about planting, and the church we're a part of isn't interested in being a part of that, and so we're, we don't really know what to do." And, and he said, "Well." Uh, we're losing our worship pastor and and I, I would love to hire you to be our worship pastor for the next two years and then fund you when you plant this church. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. It just out of nowhere, this opportunity showed up. And so we went up to Bonner's Ferry and I, you know, like I auditioned. I had to like lead a worship service and it was weird. But um. And I met with the elders, and we had these conversations, and and we prayed over the course of uh, Thanksgiving and and Christmas of that year. And I just think we were were just asking the Lord, like, what are we supposed to do here? Are we supposed to make this move? And it just seems like it's this providential thing. And we just kind of came to the decision that, like, we didn't want to live in Bonner's Ferry. And so we didn't go. And the reason I mention that story is because today I want to talk about making decisions. How how do we make decisions as followers of Jesus? How do we how do we seek the Lord? What are what are we supposed to look for, and what are we supposed to do when we figure out how God would live uh, have us live our lives? And I and I know that that's a question that we all, many of us in this room right now have. And and if you don't right now, you've had it. Um, who should I marry? What job should I take? Where should I live? Should I go in for this promotion? Should I buy a house? Should I sell a house? These are These are decisions that we make all the time. And, and if we're Christians here, we understand that like God has an opinion about that. And so how do we figure that out? This story uh, is about a marriage proposal. So some of you who are single in the room today maybe you know pay attention to how this goes and use it as a model, maybe. I don't know, uh, but it could be about like a hundred different things that we decide on a daily basis. So there's a couple principles. We're not going to read through the whole text. Uh, it's there's a lot here that we're we're not going to cover, but a couple principles that I want to take a look at this morning. And the first one is that when we're making a decision as a follower of Jesus, we need to first of all know the non-negotiables. In the first nine verses of this story, we read that Abraham is old. He's he's been blessed, and he he tells his servant to go to a far country and pick out a son, uh, a wife for his son. And and the servant says, "Well, what if what if it doesn't go well? Can Isaac go back to this land?" And and Abraham says two things. He says, "No." Um, you cannot pick a wife for my son from the people of the land. That is, that is off limits. And my son cannot go back to the land of my father's. That is off limits. Those are the non-negotiables in this scenario. Abraham is confident that he and his family are meant to live in the land that he was promised by God. We've seen it over and over again Uh, God promises Abraham this land, and Isaac is meant to be there because God is very clear about that over and over and over again. Additionally, in chapter 15, we read that... God tells Abraham, in the fourth generation, your descendants, they'll return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And and we get the impression that most of the people in the land of Canaan are are wicked people. They are um, deviant and, and they are immoral people. And God is patient with them. But he says, you know, at some point, they're going to be judged. And Abraham doesn't want his son marrying into this group. The servant is supposed to go back to Abraham's family and find a wife that is willing to move to Canaan and is from the lineage of God's promise. Abraham understands the character and the commands of God, and these are non-negotiables for him. And just as an aside, this whole, like, don't marry a Canaanite woman is, is about the covenant. It's not about ethnicity. Throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are commanded not to marry foreigners. We see this over and over again through the law. And it's not because they are foreign, it's because they worship false gods. And this is really important, and I, I hate that it's really important, but there is a rising movement, unfortunately, in the Christian world that is trying to reassert this idea that people should limit themselves to their own people groups in their relations. There's a movement called kinism, which is growing in popularity. It's defined as God's intended order is loving one's kind by separating people along tribal and ethnic lines to live in large extended family groups. And there's a real popular book out right now that that is promoting that in the church. And it's wicked because it's racist and it's wrong. And this is not what the Bible teaches what the Bible does stress over and over and over again is that God's people need to be connected with God's people. And that's not an ethnic distinction. That is a faith distinction. Christian, you're called to the same standard. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about uh, marriage. He says, a wife is bound as long as her husband is living to her husband. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants but only in the Lord. He says, like, if if you're a widow and you want to get remarried, you're free to do that, but you need to marry a brother in Christ. In 2 Corinthians, he repeats himself. Paul says, do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? This of course applies to many different situations of deep partnership, but marriage is a, is a good one. If you pursue someone in a romantic relationship and become covenantally bound to them and they do not share your faith in Christ, you're in for, well, more trouble than you would be otherwise. The BDN of Wale talking about this says, uh, offers this advice. He says, run after, hard after Christ, single people. Look to the right, look to the left, and marry someone that is running beside you. Find someone who is passionate about Jesus and draw close to them. So, Abraham knows his non-negotiables. Isaac is not allowed to leave the land and he's not allowed to marry someone from the land. How, what, does that, what does that say to us? We, we are people that also know the non-negotiables. We've been given God's word differently than Abraham did, but we've been given God's word. And, and the Bible is not a magical answer book. In some ways, it's not gonna tell you who to marry. It's not gonna tell you what job to take. It's not gonna tell you how to spend your money or what city to live in. There are parts that are difficult to understand, but there are also a, par, a lot of parts that aren't very difficult Here's a couple that I, I pulled out this week. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. That may be hard to do, but it's not hard to understand. A little later on in that same passage, Paul says, Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, or we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to love one another, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. <laughs> to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone the book of ephesians again paul says therefore put away lying speak the truth each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another be angry and do not sin don't let the sun go down on your anger you you can be angry but you can't be angry for more than a day <laughs> that's that's an easy one don't give the devil an opportunity Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. And again, over and over and over again in the scriptures, we are told what God's will is. This is how you are expected to live as a child of God. Not because you're earning his favor, not because he won't love you if you don't follow the rules, but because you have been made into a new sort of person in Christ. And this is what God's kingdom looks like. These are non-negotiables for us because we are Christians. Just like Abraham, we belong to God in Christ. We've been given God's word to shape us into people that actually trust him. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I don't know all of you, but maybe maybe you're not a Christian and and you can do whatever you want, right? Like you're, you're not under any obligation to follow the scriptures. But my warning would be, we all think we know what's best for us, but chances are... You don't. Chances are your gut instinct about what is good for you is, at least in some places, wrong. Abraham says, because I know what God is like, I know His non-negotiables, and this is how I'm going to make my decisions. So for us, we, we need to be people, men and women, that are reading and studying our Bibles, on our own, with other people, listening to podcasts, reading books, however it works for you, become a person that gets to know the scriptures. We were talking about this in community group this week, how there's this tension between this ancient book that's kind of hard to understand and how it takes effort and study. And and there's thankfully, gratefully God equips men and women to be scholars, to teach us, that it can be dangerous to just get alone with your Bible if you don't know how to read it correctly. But at the same time, that's not really an excuse to just not know God's word. This book is filled with supernatural wisdom. We prayed this morning, God, your kingdom come. What does that look like? Well, it's in this book. King Solomon, the the wisest man that ever lived writes in proverbs 2 my son if you accept my words and store up my commandments within you listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding furthermore if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure then you will understand the fear of the lord and discover the knowledge of god for the lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding wisdom is the ability to make good decisions In addition to like simple commands, right, that we can just read and understand and follow, learning the scriptures will make you wise. It will give you the tools for when there's a situation where you don't have a verse that you can turn to and help you to choose the right path. Charles Spurgeon, I I love this quote. He says, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. How many of us feel like we're falling apart says so if if you are in the word chances are you're a wise person. I really think getting to know the scriptures solves 90% of the decision making that we have to do. Right? There's going to be things and we're going to talk about different ways to understand God's voice, but but there are going to be things that you approach that become easy decisions because you know who God is, you know what he is like and you know what kind of life He wants you to live. And our problem is either we do not take the time to know God well, or worse, we we understand what the scriptures call us to and we just ignore them. But Abraham will have none of it. Isaac will not leave the land and he will not marry a local. Those are not options. So if we're gonna make wise decisions, we have to know what the non-negotiables are. And then secondly, we need to pray. But I, I wrote here, pray, but don't, manipulate God. In verse 12, the servant says, "'Lord, God of my master Abraham, make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I'm standing here at the spring where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to drink water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink. And who responds, drink, and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you've shown kindness to my master.'" So first off, it's really good that the servant prays, right? He's in this situation. He has this need. He prays urgently and specifically. God, here I am. This is what I need. I've talked before about how I struggle with this sometimes. I like the idea of praying, but when it actually comes time to pray for something, I just kind of either forget or think it's not worth it. This happened uh, just last night, and I, I probably would have re- responded differently if I hadn't been studying this this week, but Joanna was out grocery shopping, and she she called me and said, hey, I'm going to be a while. I just got out to my car and realized I dropped my keys somewhere in Fred Meyer. <laughs> and, uh, and she was upset, um, and, and I, I just thought, well, you know what, hey, can, can I pray on the phone right now that, that God would help that go quickly and, and she said yeah and and so we prayed and and it was like 5 minutes later she was home because somebody had found him and took him to customer service and she found him right away and but I don't always think that way. I honestly I generally don't think that way. I just think oh that's a bummer and oops. <laughs> Good thing it's not me. <laughs> but if you look at the prayers of people in scripture they are so very often urgent and specific. God, I am in trouble. This is what I need. Help me. Do we pray for things? One way that I have combated my tendency to not pray is I keep a prayer journal. And I'm not a very good journaler, um, but I keep a list of of people, people that I know who aren't Christians yet, that I want to meet Jesus. A list of men in the church who I think would make good elders. Uh, The church's budget, my family's budget. Um, we, many of you know that we're, gonna be, uh, we're not gonna have this building anymore after the end of May. And so I, that's a new one for, for me. Like every day, like, God, we need a new building. And, I, and it's specific and it's daily. And I, I seek the Lord in prayer. These are the people and the circumstances, God, that I need you to take care of. And I pray over and over and over again for months at a time. Our prayer team prays for everyone who asks for it every single day, right? I just, I just handed out new prayer books for our prayer team. There's 45 families represented. That's the highest we've ever had. Praise God for that. But you all get prayed for if you're in the prayer book every day by 12 different people. And that matters because God answers those prayers. But then the servant also does something that I would say we shouldn't do. He Notice he gives God a couple of conditions. One of the conditions is a yes, and one, the other condition is a no. The girl that, that not only gives me water, but when I ask also waters the camel, she is the one that I'm to pursue. Bill Arnold in his Genesis commentary says, it's been estimated that such a generous act of watering 10 camels would have required dozens of trips between the spring and the trough, taking hours to perform. So the servant's mentality is this request is so crazy that if it happens, it must be God at work. And in one sense, I think we're supposed to see the intense generosity of Rebecca, right? She goes way out of her way to serve a stranger, And this puts her in the same category of character as Abraham himself. Remember a couple chapters ago, Abraham went way out of his way to serve the strangers that came to visit his tent. And and chapter 24 is teaching us that Rebecca's character mirrors Abraham's character, which makes her an appropriate wife for Isaac. But this is what in common Christian parlance is called putting out a fleece. If you're unfamiliar with that reference, it comes from the book of Judges, chapter 6, where uh, one of the judges named Gideon is told to build an army and go out and and redeem his people, uh, and he's not sure about it. And so he puts out a, a sheepskin on the ground and asks God, hey, if you're really speaking to me, will you make the fleece wet tonight with dew and the ground dry. And so God does it. And then the next night, he's still not super sure. So he says, okay, tonight will you make the fleece dry and the ground wet? And God does it. And even after that, he's still not very sure of it. He needs another thing to get him going. But here's the problem with this sort of arrangement. It is a blatant attempt to control God, right? God, here are the two ways that you are allowed to act. I have decided what these actions mean, and I will interpret your will based on what you do. Like, that's not really the relationship we have with the king of the universe who sovereignly controls everything, right? Like, he is in charge, and for us to step in and say, these are my requirements for you to act, that's just not the basis of our relationship with him. John Walton calls this asking oracles, He says, in the process of asking oracles, the inquirer assumes a position of control. Deity is summoned to be at his or her beck and call in ways far beyond normal prayer. An oracle requests specific information in a specific way at a specific time. This has the appearance of backing God into a corner because, as the mechanism is set up, anything that happens is an answer. I have some examples of this. Um, In the 16th and 17th century in Europe, they had something called a dunking stool. They would take a chair and they would tie it to a tree and throw it over a tree branch by a river, hanging it over the water. And typically women who they thought were witches, they would put in the stool and they would lower them into the river until they were under the water. And they figured if they don't drown, they were innocent. Anybody see a problem with that? Right, So if you drowned, the, the most logical, normal consequence of this action, if you drowned, you're a witch and you were guilty. That's a dumb idea. But you know what? I, I've done that. Have you ever done that? I remember thinking, you know what? God, God doesn't want me to look at porn, but if he really doesn't want me to look at porn, he'll just shut the internet off. That, yeah, that didn't work giving him two options where one is just completely absurd. Another example, uh, there's a a story of a a young man named Stephen of Cloyes in, in in the 1200s. He's a teenage boy who said he had a letter from Jesus to give to the king of France, and the letter instructed the king of France to help him raise an army to go on a crusade to Jerusalem. The king of France thought this was crazy because this little boy was 12 years old. And he said, no, but Stephen was this uh, charismatic preacher. So he went around the countryside and gathered up thousands of young people to his cause. And they started marching to Jerusalem. And he said, when we get to the Mediterranean Sea, it will miraculously part for us so that we can walk on dry land to Jerusalem for the crusade. When they got there, the sea did not part but they met a bunch of merchants who had ships who offered to take them to Jerusalem. And so Stephen reinterpreted his uh, fleece to mean that, well, actually, we're meant to have these ships take us, and that was what God was doing. So they all boarded the ships, and they were taken to Tunisia and sold into slavery. This is an example of this crazy thing that we said that God would do. It didn't really happen, so we're gonna just kind of reinterpret it to do what we wanna do anyway. Or maybe, maybe we just lay out a fleece that's kind of ambiguous. Maybe you're, uh, hypothetically you're praying to get into medical school and, and you say, God, if, if, I, if I apply to medical school and I make it in, then it was your will for me to go to medical school. Well, what if you're just smart and you're supposed to be a lawyer or a teacher or a missionary? What if after you do this, you look back and go like, well, was that really miraculous? Or did I just make that happen? See, in all these scenarios, we are creating circumstances that we have required God to act in without actually getting his consent that he wants to act that way. And every time this happens in the scriptures, whether it's Abraham's servant here or Gideon, there's another example where the Philistines do it in First Samuel. It's never really done by someone we would call a spiritual role model. It's not how the, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament tells us to live our lives and it's not how Jesus and the apostles make decisions because it involves me forcing God into a box that he's not really in any obligation to be in and it really betrays a lack of faith and reverence for who God is. And the amazing thing about stories like this, and there are a couple of them in the scriptures, is that God is gracious and merciful to do these things that are asked in foolishness. But it's not an excuse to copy the practice. Walton again says, as much as we would like to get direct and clear guidance on specific issues, we dare not come to this passage looking for a formula by which we can extract information from God any more than we would come to it for a procedure on how to find a wife. So when we need to make decisions, we need to know what our non-negotiables are. We need to pray, but not manipulate God. Thirdly, we need to bring in the counsel of others. Starting in verse 34 through 49, the servant rehearses the whole story of his journey to Rebecca's family. He has this experience where he thinks he has discerned God's will through the, the camels and the water, but he's not the only one that's gonna sign off on it. In verse 50, Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We have no choice in the matter. Rebecca is here in front of you. Take her and go. Let her be a wife for your master's son, just as the Lord has spoken. So here's another quick aside about arranged marriage. (laughs) Super not normal for us, right? We don't live in this culture where marriages are arranged like this, but it was normal for them. And it's not necessarily a bad idea. We look at things like this and we are uh, put off by them because they feel backwards to us, but there's nothing inherently wrong about this practice. Gordon Wenham uh, writes that today in southern India, verse 50, that this thing comes from the Lord is used on wedding invitations where the parents have arranged the marriage. I don't know if that's right or not, but that's pretty awesome. We don't like arranged marriage because in our context, it's, it's, our, our marriages are solely about romantic and personal fulfillment. We don't consider family. We don't consider an environment for rearing children or even the stability of the larger society when we think about marriage. Those, are, those just aren't part of the, the paradigm. And we find this distasteful because Rebecca can't possibly love Isaac and marriage is only ever about love when we think about it. This is why we leave our marriages if we've fallen out of love. Love, when it comes to a marriage covenant, though, is a decision of the will. It's not about an emotion. Tim Keller, writing about more historic ideas of marriage, says, Wedding vows in all the historic ecclesiastical books of services and prayers are more about a promise of mutually binding future love than a declaration of your present love. That's a very different paradigm than the one that our culture teaches us. And we see it play out in this story in the last verse of the chapter. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and took Rebecca to be his wife. Isaac loved her, and he was comforted after his mother's death. The marriage takes place first, and then the relationship of love blossoms afterwards. And I'm not making specific pronouncements on how everyone should handle their love lives, except maybe for Karis. But when we come to something that is in the Scriptures that we dislike, it's worth asking, why do we dislike it? Is it because it's wrong? Because there are things in the Scriptures that are morally wrong, that God calls morally wrong, that we should feel that way about. Or is it because we've just been discipled by a specific worldview in potentially unhealthy ways? But for the servant... This is a step in the right dis- direction for discerning God's will. This is, this is what I was supposed to do. This is what I think the Lord is showing me. What do you all think? He asks the family. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Without guidance, a people will fall, but with many counselors, there is deliverance. Now, Obviously, Rebecca and her family are involved in this because it's a marriage proposal, but in general... This is such a foreign idea to us as modern Americans. We live in our own individual ecosystems and we make decisions, sometimes really important decisions, without bringing other people into the process. One of my favorite theologians, Taylor Swift, gave the commencement, ceremony, or commencement speech at New York University last year and she said, I know it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and when, who you are now, and how to act in order to get where you want to go. I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. This is a lie. This is a lie that we have been taught from birth in this culture. I belong to myself. Everything about my life is mine. And this is not true because if you are a Christian, you belong to Christ. Alan Noble in his book, You Are Not Your Own, which is excellent, writes, whom we belong to makes all the difference in the world. If we belong to ourselves, we are radically free with all the accompanying glory and terror. Swift picks up on this in her statement. But if we belong to God, then our experience of belonging in the world has limits that we have not freely chosen. So much of my decision-making, if I really investigate my own soul, has to do with presenting myself in such a way that I will feel validated by others. I want you to see my life and praise me for it. But if I belong to Christ, none of that matters. I stand or fall ever and only before him. And my standing before Christ has nothing to do with whether or not I make the right decision. It is 100% based on God's goodness and grace towards me, which I do not deserve and cannot earn, but has been freely given out of love. That is my primary identity. And that is your primary identity, Christian. You belong to Christ. So, what does that have to do with seeking counsel from other people? Well, if I belong to Christ, then I also belong to all of you. A couple of long passages, but pay attention to what Paul is saying here in Romans 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is a statement about how you should live your life, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is about wisdom, so that you may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. What does God want me to do with my life? And that's where we stop. That's the end of that verse, verse two. And then we think Paul changes the subject in verse three, but he doesn't, it's a continuing paragraph. He says, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than than he should think you're not as awesome as you think you are. Instead think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. See that the, we make a, a separation there. Paul's talking about wisdom and living your life a certain way in the first two verses. And then he changes subjects to spiritual gifts in the church. But it's all part of the same thought for Paul. Part of this process of submitting ourselves as living sacrifice for the renewing of our mind and discerning what the will of God is involves bringing the other community members into that because we're all members of each other. This is not the only place this comes up. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul says, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise wisdom, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So again, it's in a similar passage where he's talking about being wise and not being drunk because when you're drunk, you do stupid things, but being filled with the Spirit where you can be gain wisdom. He seamlessly works in the fact that we're called to submit to one another in that process. John Mark Comer, uh, the author of the book Live No Lies, in that book talks about this concept and he gives the example, which I think is pretty extraordinary, um, but he says that he has a $1,000 spending limit. And if he, want, if he ever wants to spend more than $1,000 on something, he has a group of people in his small group community that have to sign off on that. And, and if you're like me, that's the craziest thing you've ever heard, that's, that you would just let other people who aren't even your, your biological family, it's not, it's not his wife, I'm sure his wife is part of the group, but um, it's, it's these people that he has pledged his life to as a Christian, they have authority over his personal spending habits. Because he believes that he will be more wise by bringing them into that decision-making process than by making those decisions on his own. So do you have wise, godly people to speak into your life? Remember earlier, I quoted 1 Thessalonians where Paul says to mind your own business. Most of the time, godly people aren't going to offer you an unsolicited opinion about what you're doing with your life. If you're waiting for people to come to you and go, hey, I see you over there, that's a dumb idea, don't do it. They're probably not gonna do that. You're gonna have to ask them. You're gonna have to have the awkward conversation to go like, hey, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm thinking about doing. Do you think it's a good idea? What would you do in my situation? C.S. Lewis says, the next best thing to becoming wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. It takes decades to become wise. Most of us haven't been on this planet long enough, but we're surrounded by a community of people who have. Couple things, this doesn't mean that everyone is wise. (laughs) My wife recently uh, informed me of this kind of Instagram influencer that is like a 20-something stay-at-home mom who has a two-year-old. and and she's a parenting influencer. And I just think that's not the person you get parenting advice from. That's a bad idea. You get parenting advice from 70-year-olds who have raised godly Christian adults. Like, that's who you go to for that sort of wisdom. Just because everyone is peddling their knowledge doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. And this also doesn't mean that there will never be a time when you are called to do something that goes against the advice of godly people. In the book of Acts, Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem and over and over and over again, godly, wise, spirit-filled people go, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, they're gonna kill you. And he goes, I know, but I need to go anyway because God is calling me to that. And so that, that, that doesn't mean that... that that there won't be a time where you are absolutely sure that God is calling you to something and everybody else is concerned about it. That might be true, but if all of your decisions you are constantly making fly in the face of godly counsel, maybe something else is going on. So know your non-negotiables, pray, don't manipulate the Lord and seek godly counsel. And then the last point I have this morning is make a decision. Verse 54, then he and the men with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they got up in the morning, he said, send me to my master. But her brother and mother said, let the girl stay with us for about 10 days. Then she can go. But he responded to them, do not delay me since the Lord has made my journey a success. Send me away that I may go to my master. So they said, let's call the girl and ask her opinion. They called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She replied, I will go. So they sent away their sister Rebecca with the one who had nursed her and raised her and Abraham's servant and his men. So the Hebrew word there for 10 days is a little obscure. Nobody really knows exactly what it means, but it may actually mean a year or more. So whatever's being asked here, mom and brother, they're initially okay with the marriage, but then right now, so soon, let's just, let's give it some time. Let's put the brakes on it. And again, the narrative is positioning Rebecca in a situation that makes her like Abraham. Is she willing to trust in the promise of Yahweh and upend her life and go into a foreign land by faith? When you have an important decision to make, taking your time isn't a bad thing. But many of us have experienced going through the process Desiring something, praying about it, seeking wise counsel, and then just not. Have you ever done that? Some other time. Maybe next year. I'll get around to it someday. In his book, Just Do Something, Kevin DeYoung talks about this, and he shares this uh, fictional news story that's headline says, Man 91 Dies Waiting for the Will of God. It reads, Walter Houston, described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. He hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby says. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way, Ruby says. He was very sensitive to always remaining in God's will. That was primary to him. Friends say they liked Walter, though he seemed not to capitalize on his talents. Walter had a number of skills he never got around using, says lifelong friend Timothy Burns. He worked very well with Wood and had a storyteller side to him too. I always told him, take a risk, try something new if you're not happy. But he was too afraid of letting the Lord down. And I wonder how many of us resonate with that, that there are, there are so many possibilities, so many decisions that you could make and so many potentially wrong decisions that you just get paralyzed by it. Oftentimes in the business world, this is called analysis paralysis where you just need another study and need another report, need more data so that you can have a complete grasp of the picture, but that grasp, grasp of the picture never comes and you never act. I think I wanna pursue biology, but what if that's the wrong career? I really like this woman, she's godly, and I enjoy her company, but what if there's somebody better out there? We wrestle and wrestle and wrestle because of the possibilities that might be. Augustine, a long time ago, said, "'Love God and do whatever you please, "'for the soul trained in love to God "'will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved.'" if we are people who are in the word of God, if we know what our non-negotiables are, if we are maintaining and cultivating a life of prayer, if we are seeking godly counsel, we can be confident that we can make decisions. Rebecca has this decision to make and taking more time to think about it isn't going to change the situation. Is she going to put her life in God's hands and trust in his promises or not? and it's up to her are there more are there important decisions that we have to make absolutely will you make the wrong one and ruin your life forever if you are developing a robust prayer life if you're learning to read the bible if you're submitting to the wisdom of the community of god's people no you'll be fine you'll make some missteps There will be some, man, I wish I'd done that one differently in your life that you can look back on. It's part of the process of becoming wise, by the way. But at the end of the day, our lives belong to Christ, and he will complete the work that he has started in you for your good and his glory. And we see in this story the second generation of men and women that are relying on God's promises Rebecca, this young woman who is incredibly generous and kind and who has great faith in this God that she's just beginning to learn about. And she's willing to take steps to make decisions to go off to the land of Canaan and marry this man that she hasn't met yet for the sake of that faith. And I think we can be people that live similar lives of faith. Let's do some questions. Can we talk about the awkwardness that is the placing of your hand under someone's thigh to form an oath? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. There are so many cool things in this chapter that I was like, I don't have time for that. But since you asked... Uh, that is a genital reference. It's typical for Genesis that we talk about uh, sexuality in some form. Nobody really knows what that's about other than this is kind of the focal point of God's promise for Abraham, right? Like this, this, the covenant of circumcision, when we talked about circumcision, when was that? A couple months ago. Um, this is God saying, hey, this part of your body, I own this, and I'm gonna do a thing with this and you're gonna have a son and he's gonna to belong to me and you're gonna trust me for it. And so the scholarship thinks that it has something to do with that, that, hey, servant, my son Isaac is the, is the promise. He is the, he's the one that God has uh, um, set aside this part of my body to create. And so I'm gonna make you swear on that part of my body that you're gonna do right by me. Super weird. <laughs> hmm. What tells us the way the servant goes about this is wrong? Does the New Testament reference and denounce it anywhere? I have many friends who live like this. Yeah, me too. I live like this. Um, I think this is this is more about what we see. Again, it's... And maybe, maybe somebody else can think of a verse, but I, I've got more of a thought about the general... Um, the general gist of scripture, right? As we read God's word from cover to cover, we begin to learn how he invites us to participate with him. Um, we read the book of Proverbs, we read this to, and, and learn about what wisdom looks like. We read the book of Psalms and we understand how our emotions play in with um, God. We read the Gospels and see how Jesus came to decisions about things. We read the book of Acts and the epistles, and we see how the apostles are wrestling with how to seek wisdom. We see that one time when in Acts when they cast lots at the very beginning, but that's before the Holy Spirit comes. And after the Holy Spirit is given on Pentecost, they don't do that anymore. And I think the most important thing to think about when you are creating a scenario in which God must act, is that you're just never given the authority to be that person. You're just never, in in the Bible, you're just never given uh, the, the green light to tell God what to do like that. And again, while, while it, the, the confusing part about these examples, and there's a couple of them, is that in His grace and His mercy, He he works with people who do this, and it's probably true that he works with your friends who do this because if that's where your faith is, and that's all you've got and 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 you've you you know read about Gideon and the fleece and you're like, "Okay, this is how we do it. God is good and he's loving, and he's a he's a parent that wants what's best for you and and he's gonna acquiesce from time to time to those things but as i get to know who I am and what my responsibility is towards God and who God is and how he is uh, the sovereign king of the universe to whom I owe my absolute allegiance, I don't see evidence that this kind of forcing God into an answer is the way that he wants to work with us. He wants to teach us wisdom. Wisdom. He wants to make us into men and women that understand his heart and can walk in wise ways. And uh, that doesn't mean that it didn't work, but I just don't see permission in the scriptures from that. Tori, you've got your hand up. What's up? yeah well, he could have um i mean I think the pr- the point of the prayer is really helpful, like God, here I am, I'm at this well, I don't know what to do next, give me wisdom he could have he would have immediately met Rebecca just like the story unfolds, uh, and he could have struck up a conversation with her and and gone down the same exact path that he did um, I think there's He knows the kind of person that he's looking for, right? And the way the story plays out, he would have found her pretty quickly, just the way it happened, without having to say, she better do this crazy, outrageous, water my camels thing. Um, Because what if, I mean... Obviously, this is how the story plays out and God honors it, but what if she hadn't? What if she'd just been really kind and given him a drink of water and then gone about her business, but he'd already placed this, like, the girl that waters my camels is the one, and that didn't happen, and now he's faced with this question mark of, like, did God answer me because nobody watered my camels and nobody's here, or did I do it wrong? And it just add that would just add a layer of doubt into the whole story that, that he'd have to deal with. Um, I can imagine, and again, I don't know that it's helpful it's so much to rewrite the story, but I can imagine him just going to the well, meeting Rebecca immediately, getting into a conversation about who her dad is and going, hey, we need a place to stay. Can I come over there? More conversation would follow. And he could have easily gotten to the same um, result, I think. But that's just speculation on my part. It's a good thing to think about, though, and as we continue to be people who are always making those decisions, let's be people that um, pray and seek counsel and and try to work it out together. We're going to take communion. This is, this is our weekly recitation of the most important decision that we can ever make, right? Giving our allegiance to Christ. Um, and I would, I would say, again, I, I don't know everybody in the room this morning. Maybe you've, maybe you've never done that. Maybe you're not a Christian. You're living your life the way, you know, Taylor Swift is encouraging you to. You do not belong to Jesus but you can decide today to follow Christ. You can decide just like Rebecca did, to step out in faith, to follow God into the future. Scripture calls the church the bride of Christ, and and this is who we are as as his bride today. We participate in this reenactment of Jesus' vows to us, that he purchases us with his blood, that he forgives us of our sins, that he makes us clean and new but we have to make the decision to follow him. And as we come up to take the bread and the cup, this is our um, weekly reminder of that decision that we've made, to belong to him, to be his, to, bear, to pledge our allegiance to Jesus. And so I would in- invite you uh, to come up and take the, the bread and the cup, the, the wine or the juice per the dictates of your conscience. We're gonna sing, the prayer rugs are available if you want to uh, move from your seat, change the position of your body as you pray. And uh, we'll just worship together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.